Hello everyone, and welcome to After Alexander. Episode 44, Berenike's Debut. As we discussed in episode 39, a marriage alliance was arranged between Egypt and the Seleucids in the wake of the Second Syrian War. We've skimmed around this part of the story before, but haven't really gone into it in any detail. So, today, let's shift focus towards the marriage between Antiochus II and Berenike. The first question to ask is, who is Berenike? Berenike was the daughter of Ptolemy II and his first wife, Arsinoe I. As we've mentioned before, this makes her a granddaughter of Lysimachus and a great-granddaughter of the regent Antipater, who we mentioned all the way back when we were covering Seleucus I. Her birth date is listed in different sources as either 275 BCE or in the range of 285 to 280 BCE. Her brothers were the future Ptolemy III and a prince Lysimachus as well as Ptolemy the Younger, who we discussed a few episodes ago. Using 253 BCE as the end of the Second Syrian War, she may have been in the range of around 18 to 28 years old by the time the marriage contract was arranged. She is either given the epithet of Berenike Syra or Berenike Fernophorus, meaning dowry bringing. A few episodes ago, we discussed the peace agreement between Antiochus and Ptolemy at the end of the Second Syrian War. Part of this agreement was that Antiochus II would be married to Berenike, the daughter of Ptolemy II. According to Bevan, Ptolemy was the one to start negotiations to end the war and offered his daughter's hand in marriage as an incentive. Her epithet of Fernophorus is evidence for the benefits that marrying her would bring. Bevan also says in his 1902 book, The House of Seleucus, that, although we don't know what the peace exactly entailed, it may likely have included the transfer of territories from Egypt to Antiochus II. Specifically, Cilicia and Pamphylia are mentioned as Ptolemaic territories in the description of Theocritus, which we mentioned all the way back during our discussion of the First Syrian War, but are not a part of the text at Aduli in which Ptolemy III recites the lands he got from his father. As such, Bevan noted in 1902 that these territories were probably handed over. However, moving further south, Granger disagrees with the notion that either Holosyria or its tax income was given to the Seleucids as a dowry for Berenike, writing that the Ptolemies would not have given the area up so easily and, similarly, the Seleucids would not have transferred it back once they got their hands on it. In addition, an opposing theory about who was dictating the terms is based on the very nature of this marriage itself. Interdynastic marriage was not common in Ptolemaic Egypt at this time. It was common in the Seleucid dynasty, as we saw most recently in episode 43, but the women of the Ptolemaic dynasty were only allowed to wed their Ptolemaic relatives starting with the rule of Ptolemy II. In fact, Berenike would be the sole Egyptian royal girl to marry someone who was not a member of the Ptolemaic dynasty until the union between Alexander I and Cleopatra Thea in 150 BCE. And yes, she is a Cleopatra. We'll get to all of that in a future episode. Egyptian princesses theoretically had a claim to the throne. 
As such, Antiochus II would have had a claim on Egypt because of this marriage, as would a theoretical son. This would likely not have been a pressing concern for Ptolemy or Antiochus, as Ptolemy II still had two sons after the death of Ptolemy the Younger, as we've been calling him. However, the aberrance of Berenike marrying into the Seleucid dynasty has been noted as evidence of Antiochus II being the one in the driver's seat during the negotiations. Granger notes that the post-war agreement was more beneficial to Antiochus II, and the wedding was the cost of peace he laid out to Ptolemy, with the only other option being the extension of the war. Ptolemy II's monetary straits, which we mentioned in previous episodes, may have been a bigger issue than the Eastern unrest which we discussed in episode 41 for Antiochus II. Although both sides wanted an end to hostilities to focus on other issues, Antiochus II was aware that his problems were easier to deal with, or disregard entirely, than those of his rival. As such, Ptolemy II's propaganda has been noted as a front for his loss. Granger wonders how effective Ptolemy II's optics of success could have been, given that Antiochus held on to Miletus and Ephesus. The expansions of the Seleucids were apparently acknowledged by the Ptolemies. Granger disagrees with the viewpoint he cites that the deal allowed Egypt to attempt to bring down the Seleucids from within, through the introduction of Berenike into the political picture. The marriage may have been helped along by the death of Stratonike, the mother of Antiochus II, in 253 BCE. She would have been a powerful figure in the Seleucid court, and was supposedly against the marriage. The fact that this marriage and Stratonike's death both took place in 253 BCE has been pointed to as Stratonike's death allowing the agreement to take place. Anyway, that's enough politics and disagreement for now, on to the wedding. Berenike travelled north with a large retinue, including an Egyptian minister called Apollonius. Ptolemy II accompanied his daughter until Pelusium. Now, Bevan's 1927 book, The House of Ptolemy, notes the existence of a letter from Apollonius's retainer mentioning that the party taking Berenike to the border between the two kingdoms was drawing near to Sidon. This would place the boundary further north from this and past Hollow Syria, meaning it was still Ptolemaic. I don't know if this means that new evidence came to light between 1902 and 1927 about the transfer of territory between the two empires, but the viewpoint seems to be that the territorial handover we discussed didn't in fact happen. It isn't known if any territory was part of the dowry payment. The pair were married in Antioch in 252 BCE. Ptolemy II set a lot of store by the Union. He is supposed to have stayed in touch with Berenike and regularly dispatched barrels of water from the Nile River as a fertility aid to his daughter. Berenike did not become pregnant at the beginning of the union. However, a few years later, a son Antiochus was born. As we now have three people called Antiochus in the story simultaneously, a father and two sons by different marriages, I'm going to call this one Antiochus the Younger. Here again, my sources disagree on the year the child was born. I've seen it listed as either 251 or 248 BCE. We get the baby's name from a letter sent by the Lycian Ptolemaic governor to Kildara. There's disagreement between my sources about what the arrival of Antiochus the Younger means for the succession, but we'll get onto that next episode. Now, you may have realised there's a problem with all of this that we haven't discussed yet. 
Namely, we've previously established that Antiochus II was married to Laodike I. Here again, I've seen different broad versions of what happened. One version says that Antiochus II spurned Laodike in favour of Berenike, which was potentially a clause of the arrangement between the two kings. Alternatively, Laodike may not have been dismissed. Having multiple wives, or marrying close relatives, was not something remarkable at this point. In the latter case, you only have to think back to the complicated Antigonid family tree we discussed in episode 43. Moreover, the matter of multiple simultaneous wives has come up before in our discussions of Ptolemy I, while Seleucus I and Antiochus I could also have practiced polygamy. Granger notes that the Egyptian king wouldn't have been able to make Antiochus II separate from Laodike after the wedding took place. A reason for the disagreement may be that the traditional evidence for her fall from favour is that her royal titles are absent from a royal grant. However, the tradition of including such titles in such records was not constant. Similarly, it is not stated that this grant was part of the end of Laodike and Antiochus's marriage. Either way, the Seleucid court underwent a sea change and Laodike vanished. The two queens had separate residences. Laodike lived in Ephesus in her heartlands in Anatolia. She'd been gifted territory across the peninsula by her husband, which one source notes was part of the separation, as we mentioned. She had property at the Hellespont, as well as in Caria, Ilion, and close by Cyzicus. Meanwhile, Berenike stayed in Antioch. The royal court may also have moved there, closer to Berenike's homeland of Egypt. Egypt and the Seleucids had a good relationship at this point. For example, Ptolemy II had a physician called Cleombrotus of Chios paid a hundred talents for being able to treat Antiochus II. So, to sum up our position, Laodike and her sons are in Anatolia, while Antiochus II is living in Antioch with his new wife Berenike. However, Laodike was not someone who would go down without a fight. While she was in Ephesus, she supposedly plotted to restore her position. Next time, we'll catch up on what Antiochus II did for the rest of his reign. We'll also discuss the matter of heirs, continue the saga of Berenike and Laodike, and say our goodbyes to the rulers in Antioch and Alexandria. Until then, thank you all for listening. Feel free to get in touch at the show's email address for any questions or comments. Until next time... Have a great week, everyone.